We're going to be in Psalm 118 today. I learned in my study this week that this was um, the Protestant reformer Martin Luther. It was his favorite psalm, uh, and for good reason. Once we get into it, you will see. Let's read that together to begin today. Psalm 118. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. And then let's say this together. Let those who fear the Lord say, let's say this together, ready? His steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was failing or falling, excuse me, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter in through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. And he has made his light shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And let's say this last line together. For his steadfast love endures forever. Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. I have the opportunity from time to time to have discussions with business owners and people that work as leaders in local industries, and I have noticed a pattern in their speech. They have diverse opinions about a lot of different things, of course, coming from various backgrounds. Mount Vernon's kind of unique in that way. The industries bring a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds into a, into a relatively small area. But typically, they have a pretty unified perspective when it comes to acquiring talent when it comes to hiring the right person. And they have this in common. They say this, good help is what? Hard to come by. Good help is hard to come by. It's hard to find. We, together this morning, are going to be conducting an interview of our own. There is a job opening in your life and in my life and in the life of this church together 
you and I and all of us are in a need, have a great need for a hero. We are in great need of a Savior, and not just any hero or Savior. It has to be a hero or a Savior that fits a specific set of standards. Psalm 118 is going to serve as our job description for the hero. It's going to be our pattern, our rubric for hiring this hero and this Savior. Psalm 118 is written from the perspective of a nameless individual. This individual is heroic, and heroic in such a way as to fill the needed void that exists for you and for me and for Mount Vernon Baptist Church and really for all mankind as well. From a Hebrew perspective, it seems to describe either David. It's not a psalm of David. We don't know who wrote, who scribed this psalm. We don't know who to scribe it to, but it's rather Davidic in its sounding. Uh, it, it seems to describe either David or some other man of God who was appointed by divine choice to a high and honorable office in Israel. And so he is, in the first four verses, he's hearkening, he's calling the people of God to do that, to, to, to worship the Lord, his steadfast love. He's going to, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. He's narrating and he's saying, join with me in this reprise or this course, his steadfast love endures forever. And so he makes his way through those first four verses. Then he, then he breaks off into testimony, personal testimony about why they should be doing that. This champion found himself rejected by his friends and by his fellow countrymen, and at the same time violently opposed by his enemies as well. In faith in God, he battles for his appointed place, and in due time he obtains it in such a way as to greatly display the power and greatness of the Lord. Then he goes up to the house, once he gets down, about verse 18 or so, and he is then leading, so this, this thing has happened, he has been uh, gone through these trials, he prevails, and it's in his prevailing that he is calling people and reminding people to lift up the name of the Lord because the Lord is the one who deserves credit for him, for it, for this great feat. And then they're going into the temple together now to offer sacrifice of praise to the Lord who created this opportunity, who created this victory for this hero. And then at the very end of it, he is again, it begins and ends in the same way. So it's liturgical in that way. And he's hearkening the people once again to worship Yahweh. Worship God. And so according to this psalm, our job description, in order to fit the bill for this hero that we need, this Savior that we need, has to do three things. Number one, this hero has to always regard the, the Lord rightly. Always regard or fear the Lord rightly. Number two, always regard man rightly. And number three, lead and call the rest of us to do these things as well. Regard the Lord rightly, regard man rightly, and lead and call the rest of us to do these things as well. So let's understand this job description a little bit more fully this morning, and then let's interview some candidates, shall we? 
You get to be, you get to be in the boss seat today, and we're going to interview some candidates for the role of hero and savior in your life and my life and life of Mount Vernon Baptist Church, and so on and so forth. So, number one, our hero regards the Lord rightly. We are just seeing the outcomes in this psalm, but there is a reverent submission to God that this hero has. Right from the beginning, he is drawing attention to God himself. Look at the verses. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast. Let everybody say. He's gathering people together and saying, look, 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 not at me, but at the Lord. We know what's going to happen already by the end of the psalm. This hero is going to win. He's going to triumph over his adversaries, but he doesn't say, hey, he doesn't start off the psalm by saying, hey, feast your eyes on your hero. That's not how he starts. He points to the Lord. He says, God is good. His steadfast love endures forever. He has what could be described as a healthy fear or reverence for the Lord. Not not fear in a trembling sense, although the holiness and majesty of God would certainly make your knees knock if you were awake to it. You can see this you know, in, in the calling of the prophet Isaiah, Revelation chapter 5. There are, there are blips, there are images throughout the scripture where we get a little glimpse, the tent of meeting with Moses. We get a little glimpse of this holiness of God, and it is a terrifying thing. This, this verse is tried and true and trusted. It is a frightful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And he deserves even knee-knocking fear. But that's not exactly what I mean when I say fear. By fear, I mean he had great regard for the Lord. Because of what he knows about him and what he has experienced through his trials, he has great regard for the Lord. Listen to his confidence. Verse 5. 118 verse 5, out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord has answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side and I will not fear. Verse 6 and 7, the Lord is on my side as my helper. Verse 14, the Lord is my song and my strength. He has become my salvation. Verse 16, the right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. So he He is putting God in the proper place. We see throughout all the scripture that God alone is worthy to be feared. God alone is worthy to be feared. He alone can bear the weight of your soul's need to be worshipped or to worship. He alone can bear the weight and the seriousness of your undistracted, undiluted reverence. Let's put it that way. And let's from the rest of Scripture, allow me this morning to consider his worthiness, just to prove the point here from other places in the Scripture. Psalm 2, verses 10 and 11 says, the psalmist warns the rulers of the earth. He says, now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoicing and trembling. Psalm 89, verse 7, who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A great a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. Psalm 90, verse 11. His wrath 
is equal to the fear he deserves. Psalm 27, verse 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Who shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? We don't need to fear anything anymore when God is the Savior, when God is the saving one. He is the God who spoke, and it was. We just studied with our children this morning from Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm never... It's beautiful. It's beautiful to go back and study just the power of God to just speak and things do. They just go. They just come from nothing. From nothing. What majestic power is this? Behold our God, seated on His throne. He deserves nothing other than to be feared and to be worshipped. And this is the message of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. This is the overarching message of the Bible is that God is worth your worship. He is worth your worship. And not only is He worthy of it, it's good for us. When God is big, when, when the, the Lord is big in the view, when the reverence f- is properly in place for God, it's good for the individual. And there is just a bevy of verses. Psalm 115, 11, verse 11, He is a help and a shield to those who fear Him. 15, verse 13, He will bless those who fear Him. 18, verse 4, His love endures forever for those who fear Him. 23, verse 4, tri- those who fear Him will triumph over evil. Psalm 25, verse 14, the Lord confides in those who fear him. Isn't that amazing that God would confide in us? Psalm 27, not, we don't have to fear harm when the Lord is for us, when we fear God. Psalm 31, verse 19, God's goodness is poured out on those who fear him. And I've got 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, other verses, just from the Psalms and the Proverbs, of benefits of fearing the Lord. He, had links, he, he lengthens our life, teaches man wisdom, avoids evil, results in wealth and honor. The Lord delights in us when we fear Him. Our desires will be fulfilled when we fear Him. Forgiveness is ours when we fear Him. And on and on and on and on and on are the benefits when we rightly revere and fear the Lord. So what? So why is Scripture calling to this? And why is this such an important thing, qualification for our hero this morning, right? Job description, let's go back to that. He is doing this. He is rightly revering the Lord. Why is that so important? And why is Scripture calling for this so heartily? Because there is an alternative. The emphasis is either on the created or the creator. The creator or the created, creator or creation. That's where our regard can lie. Our hero also has a relationship with the created as well, with man as well. And it goes something like this. As much confidence that our hero has, needs to have in the Lord, he has just as much lack of confidence in man, in men. Listen to the verses, verse 8, Psalm 118, verse 8. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. 
Verse 9, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. He talks about men. I love that imagery. They surrounded me like bees. Like bees. They went out like fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. And what he's, he's, he's pointing to, I mean, bees are kind of scary, but a bee by itself is pretty feeble, right? I got stung by a wasp the other day. I was in my barn, and one flew down my shirt, okay? And he got me two or three times, but by golly, I got him too, right? Okay, they're feeble. Thorns, think about when... If you, if you set fire amongst a, a, a thicket of dried thorns, what happens? It gets real hot real fast, but they're gone. Quick. They flame up and they're gone. This is, what the, this is what the hero is saying that men are like. Yeah, they might be real scary, but they don't last long. And that bee might sting real hard, but he's pretty feeble. And not only is the psalmist here pointing to the weakness of man to provide salvation by what he says about them, he also points out to his own frail humanity when he doesn't, with what he doesn't say. So he's communicating his lack of confidence in men both in what he says and also in what he doesn't say. What he doesn't say, not once does he highlight his own ability to save himself from his present circumstances. Instead, over and over and over and over and over again, who is he counting on? He's counting on the Lord. He's counting on Yahweh, his God. His view being at the risk of oversimplifying. Here it is. Here's the, here is what I would summarize these first two points in. God must be big. This is what we need out of our hero. God must be big in his heart and mind, and man must be small. God must be big in his heart and mind, and man must be small. Regard, fear, respect, worship can only be given to one of two things, creator or creation. The size of regard for a holy God stands directly in juxtaposition to the size of of regard for unreliable and sinful man. You understand what I'm saying here? Very simply, when God is big, man is small. When man is big, God seems small. One or the other. One's big, one's small. It doesn't work any other way. By our nature, and the human nature of our hero, we are going to be tempted to fear someone. You're going to worship someone. It's just a matter of who. It's just a matter of who. It's, it's important to say here that our hero doesn't just cast his fellow man aside. Yes, he's obviously putting great confidence in the Lord. Mankind is made in God's image. Therefore, mankind deserves to be treated with the regard he deserves to be treated with being made in the likeness of God. But my language is precise for a reason. He regards men rightly. He regards God rightly. With respect and honor due to a man, because the authority has been given to that man by God, then it is given by our hero. 
But as far as being the driving force behind thinking and action, the wellspring of emotion, the standard for righteousness and truth, the one who is looked to for salvation, that kind of regard is way, way too heavy for any man to bear. And it must be given to the Lord. It must be given to the Creator. And finally, so third, so the first qualification was that he regarded the Lord rightly. The second qualification was that he regarded man rightly, God's big, man's small. And finally, our hero who remains nameless at this point is calling those who would come after him to join in on his view of God and man. It's literally how he begins and ends the psalm. Hear it again. He begins the psalm by, saying, by inviting everyone around him to come and share in this view of God that he has and this view of man that he has. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. But let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. The house of Aaron say, steadfast love endures forever. Let, the, let those who fear the Lord rightly say, his steadfast love endures forever. Then it ends, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine upon us, bind the festal sacrifice with cords. You are my God. We will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. This is his calling people to worship. He is the leader in this effort to worship Yahweh, to make God big and make man small in their proper places. Now, Now that we have our job description, let's open our scriptures and conduct a few interviews, shall we? Let's let's apply this rubric to a few characters here and see see what we get. Remember, always regards the Lord rightly, always regards man rightly, and is leading the rest of us to do the same. Adam, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to just, there's a few of these here, so I'll hit them quick. I'll give you the scripture. If If you're good at the sword drill and hit it. You know, you can get there with me. But Genesis chapter 3, summarizing. What happens in Genesis chapter 3? Adam, in cooperation with his wife, did not regard the Lord enough to believe his word and trust that eating the forbidden fruit was the best thing. He took things into his own hands, into the hands of a what? What was Adam? He was a mere man. He regarded his own thoughts above the thoughts of God. Man became big. God became small. You know the rest of the story. Resume in the trash, right? Abraham, Genesis 12, verses 10 through 13. Still called Abram, feared that Pharaoh would kill him because of his wife's beauty. So what did he do? He told a half-truth, which is a whole lie. That's my sister, he said, which was kind of true. She was his relative. Why? Because he wanted to be liked by Pharaoh. Powerful man, prince, liked by Pharaoh, thought well of, made wealthy by Pharaoh. Scared that he might lose his neck over his pretty wife from Pharaoh. And then, not only that, but he fathered Ishmael through Hagar because he was afraid he wouldn't have their heir that God promised him through Sarah. Wanted to have his, wanted to have his heir, wanted to have his, his legacy live on, the legacy of a 
man above the testimony and truth of, of God. Abraham, go find another role. You can't be our hero. Lot, Genesis 19, demonstrated that fearing man more than God has ramifications far beyond our own lives even. Notice that Lot, particularly in his fear of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and the fruit that bore in the lives of his family, his daughters sinned greatly. His wife became a pillar of salt because she loved the pleasures of man more than she loved obedience to the God who created her and spoke truth to her and was even, she was out of the city, had saved her. She had to look back and get a glimpse. Lot's no good. He's off the list. Jacob, Genesis 27, verses 41 through 44, and, 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 and in that middle section of Genesis Jacob flees to Laban because he's afraid that his brother Esau will kill him. Even though the Lord has made clear that Jacob is chosen above Esau, and the blessing is with Jacob, he is afraid of what he has done, the the acts he has committed, that his bigger, stronger, hairier, redder brother is going to end him, and so he runs away because he's afraid of a man. He has a lifelong pattern, not only this, but then he develops this lifelong pattern of resorting to trickery and cowardly tactics to accomplish his means rather than just trusting the Lord, rather than just trusting that those things will come to pass and he can live a righteous life anyway because he's afraid of man, because men are big in his view, and so God shrinks. Sorry, Jacob, you're you're underqualified. Moses, Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 through 17, and Numbers 20, verses 9 through 13. As a young man, Moses flees after killing a man. He flees Egypt after killing a man, knowing what he had done could result in punishment and death. And then later in his life, as the leader of Israel, the first time God tells him, strike the rock to get water when the people of Israel are thirsty... And then the second time, he, in Numbers chapter 20, he's commanded to speak to the rock to bring forth water. And in his frustration and his anger with the people, it caused him to fear the people more than he feared God and the commandments of God. And so he took his staff and did what? Struck the rock. And he disobeyed the Lord. Seems like we're splitting hairs here, but... We got standards. We're, we're, we're hard-nosed bosses around here. We've got, we've got a standard to uphold. Sorry, Moses. You're out. Aaron. The Moses is out. You know Aaron's out. Exodus 32, right? Gives in to the Israelites. When Moses is up on the mountain, they say, he's dead. Do you see all that lightning? Look at that mountain. It's black from all the craziness going up there. That guy ain't coming back. Give us a God to worship. And he fears them, and he wants to please them, and he wants to be liked by them. And so what's he do? Makes a calf, and they worship it. As, I mean, the ink is not even dry on the tablet, so to speak, as Moses is coming down the mountains, and they're already violating what God has required. Aaron's out. Samson gives in to his nagging wife, and then later his 
his Delilah. And of course, it doesn't work out well for him. He's out. Saul responds to, in jealous anger to David's ascendancy. King Saul starts off good, looks like he might be the right kind of guy for the job, falls flat on his face. King David, hey, hey, good qualified applicant here. Let's pay real close attention. Ready? David. David, again, he, like Saul, starts off very well, but then faced with a middle-aged body, instead of going out to war with the kings in the spring like he's supposed to, he hides in his palace. And then, fearing becoming obsolete because he's hiding in his palace, fearing what other people might think of him that because he's, he's hiding in his palace, he decides to do a little bit of conquering, just not the right kind of conquering, and he conquers a married woman. Main Bathsheba, instead of the Philistines. And then, fearing being exposed as an adulterer, he has her husband murdered. David's out. Jonah is outraged by God's compassion upon Nineveh. His fear of man was manifested in his hatred towards the Ninevites. Jonah's out. The Pharisees. Many examples throughout the gospel feared both the response and opinions of other people, and they viewed those not like themselves with an air of superiority and condescension. And remember, when they get to the when they're putting Jesus on trial, and they and they say they basically are making these accusations that Jesus said he's the King of the Jews. And then Pilate says back to them, he says, "Is that not so? Is he not your King?" And they say, "We have no King but Caesar." People pleasers, cowards, out. Not our heroes. Peter denies Jesus not one, not two, but three times. Why? Because he's afraid of men. Paul confronts Peter for then, and that's not even the end of it. Even after Jesus reinstates him, Paul confronts Peter for allying himself to the Judaizers, fearing their opinion, and thus adjusting how he was handling himself in the presence of the Judaizers so that he wouldn't be thought ill of. Why? Because he had more regard for men than he did the gospel in that moment. How about you? Let's, let's interview you for a second. Okay, so we didn't find anybody in the Bible. It's your story. How about we see if you could be the hero of your story? Let's look at you. Let's interview you. Ready? You're, some of you are like, ugh. Have you ever struggled with peer pressure? Ever have a hard time saying no to things that you don't have time for? Do you ever feel as though you might be exposed as an imposter? You ever second guess decisions because of what other people might think? Do you ever lie? And not, not I mean, like, and then there's lies, and then there's these, the little white lies just to make things seem a little better than what they are. Ever do that? Do you avoid people? When an elder calls to ask how he can pray for you, 
He ever told him everything is fine or just gave a superficial answer? When it's not fine? Have you ran from conflict rather than seek reconciliation? Or have these questions missed the mark entirely? And when you compare yourself with other people, do you feel good about yourself? Perhaps the most dangerous form of the fear and reverence of man is the successful fear of man. Such people think they have made it. They have more than other people. They act better than other people. They believe more rightly than other people. They feel good about themselves, but their lives are still defined by what and who? Other people. People. Rather than God. Or how about this one? Have you ever been too timid to share your faith in Jesus? Why do we do this? Why, without intentional effort to keep them from doing so, do our affections drift back towards the created rather than the creator? Why does man become so big and God become so small so easily? It's as old It's as old as Adam and Eve, and it originated in the fall. Genesis 3, verses 6 and 7 says, When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Sin brought shame. And shame means we have something to hide. And if we have something to hide, that means we constantly run the risk of being exposed. And if exposed, rejected. And if rejected, hurt. And so what is our inherited tendency? Let's read from Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. We do as they did out of this fear And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day. And the man and the wife, what did they do? They hid. They hid. Hid themselves. No one, no man can handle the deepest, darkest recesses of your heart. No one is worthy to be trusted with that. Not Even you can stand up under the weight of your own shame. So when anyone other than the Lord is in your predominant concern, your predominant fear, your predominant reverence, what do you have to do? Like Adam and Eve, for fear of being found out, you have to hide. Past experience tells us that man can harm us and cause pain and difficulty. Life hurts, we're rejected, we'll be exposed. The scripture tells us that we don't have to fear, we, we, we don't have to fear any longer. But it's tough. People can kill us, but that's not even the worst thing. We are proud and self-centered. And it's, pride is not just limited to the self-confident. It is at the center of the insecure and codependent person as well. Both individuals, both the hubris-filled CEO in the office and the insecure, 
quiet, meek, self-doubting secretary. Both are rooted in pride. We have a needs-based view of other people. I need her love. I need his respect. I need his interest in me. I need my children's obedience. I need friendship. I need a good church. I need clothes. I need this type of education. I need work. It seems very easy and becomes very easy to move from the, using the word need to actually believing the word deserve. I deserve. So we have a wrong view of what we truly need and what we truly deserve. While all these things that I just mentioned are good things, it is ultimately true, is it ultimately true that you need those things? You may want those things. There may be great advantage to having those things. You may function best with those things. But as a Christian, I must ultimately say, no, I don't need those things. The only thing I truly need in this life or in the next is for my sins to be atoned for that I may be reconciled to God. Can I get a witness? Furthermore, the only thing you truly and I truly deserve is to spend eternity in hell for the sins that I've committed and the reverencing of the created rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That's what I deserve. And that's what I need. And the biggest problem facing every man and woman who has ever walked this earth is not how they feel about themselves on a given day. It's what, when we die, we will face our righteous, holy creator and be accountable for every thought, every word, every deed, And not according to our own standards, but to his righteous standards. Brothers and sisters, we need a hero. We need a hero that has paid the price for our lack of regard and our fear of the Lord. A hero who is ever calling us to follow in his footsteps as he rightly views God as big and as man small. And we have one more applicant. We haven't looked at just yet. I'll warn you, though, on paper, his resume isn't all that impressive. He didn't go along to get along. He didn't snuggle up to the power brokers of his day. He wasn't rich. He wasn't good-looking. He did not leverage a big army and conquer any cities. He got himself killed because he wouldn't just play the game. He had been rejected, and he has been, had been and has been, and will be rejected for his, this position of hero and savior a countless number of times. In fact, an apt description of him would be coming from Psalm 118, verse 22. He would be a stone that the builders rejected and continue to reject. The Apostle Peter picks up on this in 1 Peter chapter 2 as he quotes the prophet Isaiah He says, For it stands in Scriptures, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This applicant's kingdom is not of this world, and therefore, when you need expedient solutions for problems pertaining to this world, his way, in most circumstances, will not be the convenient choice. It will be much more expedient to fear men than to fear this hero. It will will mean 
much more wealth and much more being liked and much more of all the things this world has to offer to not make this applicant your hero. This is the cost you have to count because we're gonna hi- when we hire a hero, we're hiring him. He's going to be here. His God over money, his God over man, his God over everything approach will not be the way to win friends and influence people. But know this, not one time did this applicant ever, in his view, shrink God. Not one time did he regard the Father small and man big. Not one time has he turned his worshiping affections toward another. He had all the riches of the world offered to him. If he only would shift his fear away from the Lord and put his fear and reverence for the things that the Lord has created, and his response to that offer was to tell Satan to get out of his sight. Get away from me, he said. And what is more, he's not only worthy of being the hero of his own story, he made it possible to be the hero of yours as well through the taking of the punishment due to you. Now this psalm, Psalm 118, is the last in a collection of six psalms saying during the Jewish Passover. Okay, it's 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 are the liturgical psalms used during Jewish Passover. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he was eating the Passover supper with his disciples. We know it as the Last Supper. Matthew chapter 26, verse 26 through 30, shows us this. He says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take this, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and saying, Drink, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you, drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And then they sang the final hymn and the six hymns that are saying at Passover which most likely is what? 118. And they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then from the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane, and from Garden of Gethsemane. How fitting. as if in that one final gesture with his disciples and this one final gesture that was so preserved in scripture so well for us he instituted the Lord's Supper which illustrates mightily it's the reminder to us of who our savior and our hero is and then they all sang Psalm 118 together about the job description of the hero. And then the hero packed up his stuff and went and did what heroes do. He went and did what saviors do. He died for you and for me. 
the hero isn't nameless in Psalm 118. His name is Jesus. His name is Christ. And whoever believes in Jesus, the cornerstone, chosen and precious, will not be put to shame. You no longer have to hide in Christ because the greatest fear that anyone can ever have, the greatest issue facing any person that has ever walked this earth ever, is that they will die and they will face the Creator and give an account for their lack of God-bigness in their view and how large they were concerned and how much they revered men rather than God. And in Christ, that is no more gone. He is our hero. He is our Savior. He wipes that slate clean. It's wiped out. When we stand before Jesus, when we stand before God, the judge of all the universe, we get to say to him, nothing in my hands I bring. I have nothing to show you. Simply to the cross I cling. Simply to the finished work of my hero I cling. And whoever believes on him, whoever believes on him and fixes their eyes on him can truly, truly with verve go after the path of the the hero of Psalm 118 because what can they do to you? What can anyone do to you now? We have been set free in Christ. Your biggest worry is gone. You're free in Jesus. Free to follow after him. Free to make God as big as you possibly can before your eyes so that men will shrink as small as you could possibly get them and your reverence belongs to the Lord. Let us fix our eyes on him. Let us follow his example and fear and worship in the Lord and not in man. And may we, like him, ever call others to do the very same. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Psalm 118. We praise you, Lord, that the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. We praise you that the right hand of the Lord, your right hand, exalts and does valiantly. Lord, we praise you that the Lord Jesus will one day lead us in a song together around his throne. We praise you that you are good and eternal and that your steadfast love will endure forever. We pray that you'd help us. Lord, to trust in you, to turn to you, to call on you in our distress, to know that it's better to trust in you, even if it means suffering in this life, than to trust in princes and those who might give us earthly comfort, but Lord, nothing beyond the grave. Lord, we love you. We commit ourselves to you. We pray for your help in this endeavor, for your blessing on our lives, that your words from Psalm 118 would continue to speak, speak, speak when we're tempted to be afraid, when we're tempted to violate your commandments because the more expedient option would be to be ashamed of what you are and what you've done and who we are. Let us not do that, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that in our boldness, Others would be drawn unto you. They would see how big you are and how wonderful you are. And they would claim you as their hero and savior too. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
you would please stand.